This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 10, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I know it's been a while, but it just took some time to put this all together. I might talk about it after the main episode. Let's get into this episode real quick. Just a little bit of details. For one, inshallah, this will be the final episode for season three. I will do a quick recap um, right about now. Right about now. So what happened so far in season three? First, Muawiyah uh, named his son Yazid as his successor, and then Muawiyah died, and Yazid became the caliph of the Muslim Empire. However, Hussein ibn Ali and Abdullah ibn Zubair, they both refused to give Yazid the pledge. Both of them fled Medina and settled in Mecca in order to escape Yazid ibn Muawiyah's forces. And while there, Hussein began to receive invitations from Kufa, where his father had been caliph, and the Kufans were asking uh, Hussein to come and lead them, become their leader in Kufa. Hussein eventually believed that Kufa was safe for him and he traveled towards Kufa with his family and a few of his supporters. In reality, however, the Umayyad governor, Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad, had taken control of the city and he sent an army to stop Hussein. The army stopped Hussein and they wanted him to surrender. Uh, Hussein would not surrender and most of Hussein's Hussein himself and most of his followers were killed just outside of Kufa at a place called Karbala. And that's where we are right now. So this episode will discuss the aftermath of Karbala and also the rise of Ibn Zubair as he becomes more popular in the Muslim empire. So before I get into I want to remind you, stay tuned after the show for some further insight into these events. And you can also support the Islamic History Podcast by making a pledge at patreon.com slash Islamic History. And so with that, let's go ahead and get into Season 3, Episode 10, Mecca and Medina. Karbala, Al-Iraq, Wahid Wasitin, Sanatul Hijriya. Karbala, Iraq. 61 A.H. Whenever Zainab closed her eyes, she saw her brother's lifeless, headless body. The Umayyads had stabbed her brother over 30 times. After he was dead, a man named Sinan ibn Anas, who was rumored to be slightly insane, had taken off his head. The Umayyads ripped the clothes off Hussein's dead body searching for wealth and plunder. But they found nothing. Her brother had very few personal possessions. But the humiliation was not yet over. The Umayyad commander, Omar ibn Sa'ad, ordered ten riders to trample Hussein's body. They rode over him three times at full speed. Zainab could do nothing. She had lost two sons and most of the men in her family. She had cried everything she had and yelled and screamed and cursed at the Umayyads until her voice was hoarse. Now she was back in the tent. Hussein's second oldest son, Zainul Abidin, too sick to partake in the battle, lay with his head on her lap. 
Perhaps there was a mercy, Zainab thought, for certainly, had Zain al-Abidin been healthy, he would have been out there with his father. Zainab heard the Umayyad soldiers laughing and yelling as they pulled down the tent searching for plunder. She heard the women of Banu Hashim screaming as the soldiers chased them down and tore the clothes from their backs. She heard the officers' futile efforts to exert some control over the soldiers. But inside the tent, it was dark and quiet. All she heard was the labored breathing of Zainal Abidin. He was awake and aware, but too sick to move. She imagined he felt the same way she did, knowing that his entire world had been destroyed in a matter of moments. Harsh sunlight flooded the tent as the opening flapped open and several Umayyad soldiers stepped in. They squinted their eyes, trying to adjust to the darkness in the tent. They were led by Shamir ibn Dhul Jaoshan, the man who gave the final order to kill Hussein. When he saw Zainab and Zainal Abidin, he took out his sword and walked towards them. Shouldn't we kill this one also? he asked, jabbing the sword at the boy. Zainab was about to unleash a tirade of curses on him when one of the soldiers spoke up. No, the soldier said. By Allah, are we here to kill little boys? We've killed many boys today, Hamaid, Shamir retorted. This one is sick and helpless, said Hamaid. Killing him would be murder. At that moment, Ahmad ibn Sa'ad entered the tent. What's going on here? he asked. We found one of the enemy hiding in here, said Shamir. Omar looked at Zainal Abidin, then at Zainab. Put that sword away, you fool, Omar snapped at Shamir. Leave this boy alone and get your men out of here. Shamir reluctantly sheathed his sword. This boy is the enemy's son. He will want revenge one day. It's best you take care of him now. What's best is that you obey your commander, Omar replied. Now get outside and get your soldiers under control. Order your men to return everything they've taken. Omar ibn Sa'ad turned and stormed out of the tent. Shamir cast a final evil glance back at Zainab and her nephew, then silently followed his commander. Humayd was the last to leave. He looked at Zainab, then lowered his head. My apologies for the tragedy your family suffered today, he said quietly. I wish it had turned out differently. May Allah reward you, good man, said Zainal Abidin. Allah protected me from evil through your words. Darul Imaro al-Kufa, Wahid Wasitin, Sanatu Hijriyah. The Governor's Palace, Kufa, 61 AH. Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad stared curiously at Hussein's head. He could not believe his enemy's head was resting on a platter in front of him. He had called an assembly of the Ashraf and noblemen of Kufa. He wanted them to witness the fall of their hero and the humiliation of the rebels. Part of him was thrilled. He had overcome a serious threat to the regime. He had emerged victorious over the rebels. He had destroyed the enemy and proved that Allah's favor was with Banu Umayyah. But another part of him was worried. He did not believe the threat was over. The people of Kufa were silent and subdued, but that was because they were afraid. They were afraid of the Umayyad military. They were afraid of Ubaidullah. They were afraid of death. But what would happen when they were no longer afraid? The city has simmered with a quiet anger ever since he had executed Muslim Ibn Aqil. 
No doubt some of them were plotting ways to express that anger. Where is the rest of him? he asked. We buried his body along with the others at Karbala, a soldier responded. Obedullah grunted and stared at the head again. The eyelids were half-closed, the skin had grayed, and the hair was caked with dirt and blood, and the mouth hung open with a small grin. That grin bothered him. Hussein had mocked Obedullah and his father while he was alive, and that grin made it seem like he was mocking them in death also. Obedullah wanted to wipe that grin off his face. For some reason, he was afraid to touch Hussein's face with his bare fingers. Instead, he used his new cane to try and turn down the corners of Hussein's mouth. Take that away from his mouth, someone yelled from the audience. Obedullah looked up, shocked and embarrassed. Who said that? he snapped. A man, stooped and bent with age, leaning on a walking stick, stood up from the audience. Obedullah recognized him as Zayd ibn Arqam, one of the Prophet's oldest living companions. By Allah, I've seen the messenger of Allah kiss those lips, Zayd ibn Arqam shouted. Have you lost your mind, old man? Obedullah asked. A slave has given authority to a slave, Zayd responded. You Arabs will be the slave after today, he waved a shaky finger at the stunned audience. If you weren't so old and senile, said Obedullah, I'd have your head. Zayd ibn Arqam jabbed his finger at the audience. You Arabs have killed the son of Fatima at the behest of the son of the bastard. He will kill you too. He will kill the best of you and make the worst of you his slaves. The Arabs have become a humiliated people, and this humiliation will destroy you. Damascus, Wahid Wasitin, Sanatu Hijriya. Damascus, 61 AH. Amir al-Mu'mineen, shouted the Umayyad messenger. I bring you good news of victory. The usurper Hussein ibn Ali came to us with 18 of his clan and 60 of his Shia. The governor, Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad, ordered us to meet them on the battlefield. We gave them the option to surrender or fight, and they chose to fight. We attacked them as the sun rose and surrounded them on every side. Our swords met their heads, and they began to flee like doves into the hills and hollows. By Allah, Amir al-Mu'mineen, we chased them down and did not give them any quarter. It was only a short time before we had slaughtered them, left their bodies naked and dusty in the sun, and their women crying, and made them food for the vultures. The man was an aspiring poet, and he probably expected some reward from the caliph. He will be disappointed, thought Yazid ibn Muawiyah. Seated in the assembly room were several Syrian noblemen. They were some of Yazid's closest advisers. To his right were the severed heads of the men of Banu Hashim, including Hussein's. Ubaidullah had sent them to Damascus along with the survivors from Karbala. Yazid breathed slowly as he glanced over Hussein's head. He had known Hussein and had fought by his side years ago when Muawiyah was caliph. Yazid had led an expedition to Constantinople and both Hussein and Ibn Zubair had been under his command. By Allah, if I had fought you, Hussein, I would not have killed you. Take these away, 
Yazid ordered the poets and told them to bring in Hussein's family. A few minutes later, Hussein's family was ushered into the great hall before the caliph. Their faces were stony and silent, full of despair and shock. The poet proudly announced their arrival. I present to Amir al-Mu'minin these vile profligates. Your mother gave birth to something viler, Yazid said. Get out of my sight. The poet scampered away and Yazid sat down on a pile of pillows and cushions. He waved for the members of Banu Hashim to sit as well. Come forward, cousin, he gestured to Zainul Abidin, Hussein's only surviving son. May Allah curse Ibn Ziyad for what he has done. I would never have killed your father. Zainul Abidin said nothing. He just stared forward looking somewhere beyond Yazid's face. But your father was a rebel. He severed our ties of kinship and tried to take what is rightfully mine. And you see how Allah has treated him. Zainul Abidin responded by reciting a verse from the Quran. No misfortune strikes the earth or yourselves unless it is written in a book before we bring it into existence. Yazid smiled at the young man. Very good, he said impressed. Now it's my turn. Say, whatever misfortune has struck you is because of what your hands have earned and he excuses much. When Zainul Abidin did not respond, Yazid ordered his servants to prepare fresh clothes. When Zainul Abidin did not respond, Yazid ordered his servants to prepare fresh clothes, food, and sleeping arrangements for the survivors. While they were waiting, Yazid addressed the audience. This is dreadful, he began. Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad is no true kin of mine. Banu Umayyah and Banu Hashim both come from the Quraysh. No true Umayya would have done this to his own family. Amir al-Mu'mineen, came an earnest voice. Everyone looked up to see a scrawny, red-faced man standing. Yazid thought he was a noble from one of the weaker Syrian families. Please, give me that one as my wife. He pointed towards Fatima, Hussein's daughter. She could not have been more than 13 years old. Never! Hussein's sister Zainab cried out. She positioned her body in front of Hussein's daughter as if to protect her. Not on my life will someone like you ever marry my niece. And he, she pointed to Yazid, cannot give away my family. Yazid blinked in surprise. Truthfully, he had no intention of letting this man marry Hussein's daughter. But who was this woman to say what he can and cannot do? Once again, Banu Hashim was overstepping their bounds. By Allah, hold your tongue, woman, snapped Yazid. If I wished for him to marry that girl, he would. Zainab rounded on Yazid, her face furious and unafraid. Wallahi, never! 
Allah would never let you force my family to do something like that. You would have to leave Islam and enslave us in order for you to do that. How dare you talk to me like that, Yazid yelled. It is your father and your brother who have left Islam. You and your father and your grandfather have been guided because of the sacrifices of my father and my grandfather. My family dragged your family into the truth, kicking and screaming. No one had ever spoken to Yazid like this before. He did not even know how to respond. You, you liar, he spurted. You enemy of Allah. He tried to sound angry, but he could hear the weakness in his voice. Zainab was not done. Look at how you've abused your authority. You've defiled my family's honor. You've acted unjustly. You've oppressed believing men and women without cause. Yazid fumbled for some response. He could have her arrested or beaten or any number of things, but doing so would only damage his reputation and create even more division. The room was awkwardly silent. Hussein's family looked at Zainab with pride. The Syrian nobles looked at Yazid with nervous fear. The silence was broken by the red-faced Syrian. Amir uh, al-Mu'minin, if, if you would consider giving me the girl... Shut up! Yazid shouted at him. Then he dismissed the room. Allah. Al-Madinatul Munawara, Wahid Wasitin, Sanatul Hijriya. Medina, 61 AH. Abdul Malik ibn Marwan joined the assembly in the Prophet's Masjid. They were listening to an announcement from Ahmad ibn Zubair, the captain of the Shurta of Medina. At 35 years, Abdul Malik was not an important member of Banu Umayyah. His father, Marwan ibn al-Hakam, former secretary to Caliph Uthman ibn Affan and former governor of Medina, was much more influential. Abdul Malik's grandfather, Hakim ibn Abil As, like most of Banu Umayyah, had initially opposed Prophet Muhammad. And when the Muslims finally conquered Mecca, the Prophet exiled Hakim from the city. Years later, while serving as Uthman's secretary, Madwan convinced the Caliph to pardon his father. This was one of the many things that turned popular opinion against Caliph Uthman. It was just after sunrise and the city was still mourning Hussein's death. The events of Karbala had reached Medina two weeks ago and had sent shockwaves through the Arabian Peninsula. Though Abdul Malik felt Hussein was at fault, he disagreed with Amir al-Mu'minin's response. Yazid should have never sent Ubaidullah after Hussein. Everyone knew Ubaidullah was a crueler version of his father, Ziyad ibn Abihi. And everyone knew Ziyad ibn Abihi was a bastard who lied about his lineage for political gain. For Amir al-Mu'minin to unleash that pretender's son on Banu Hashim was rash and foolish. Before long, the people of Medina were writing to Abdullah ibn Zubair in Mecca, offering him their pledges if he would claim the caliphate. Amir al-Mu'minin responded by appointing Amr ibn Zubair, Abdullah ibn Zubair's half-brother, as the new captain of the Shurta in Medina. Amr ibn Zubair hated Abdullah ibn Zubair and immediately launched an investigation of those who pledged to him. 
His shirts are fanned out across the city, arresting everyone suspected of supporting Ibn Zubair. They were dragged into the governor's palace, interrogated, and flogged 60 lashes. Within two weeks, open support for Ibn Zubair had subsided. But Abdul Malik knew this was because Ibn Zubair's supporters had learned to keep quiet or had fled to Mecca. Nonetheless, Ahmed ibn Zubair declared victory and announced his intentions of capturing his half-brother. We're going to march to Mecca, Ahmed ibn Zubair announced to the audience. Arrest my brother and bring him back to Amir al-Mu'minin in chains. An old companion named Abu Shureh, who had grown up in Mecca, stood up. I beg you, do not attack Mecca. It is a sacred city. I heard the messenger of Allah say that Allah has only permitted fighting in Mecca for one hour of one day, and that was the day of its conquest. Sit down, old man, Ahmed ibn Zubair had said. I know all about Mecca's status. I will attack my brother there, and I will defeat him. And whoever hates it, well, that's just too bad. Mecca tul Ithnaini wasitin, Sanatu Hijriya. Mecca, 62 A.H. Asma bint Abi Bakr smiled when her son entered the room. He tried to visit her every night after the evening prayers before going home to his family. She had arrived in Mecca just a few days after Hussein ibn Ali had left for Karbala. She was saddened that her son and Hussein did not find a way to work together, and she was even more sad when she learned of Hussein's fate at Karbala. Asma knew those Iraqis were unreliable. As she had predicted, they betrayed Hussein just like they betrayed his father. When the news of Hussein's death arrived in Mecca, the city was shocked. While Medina cried in sorrow, Mecca roared with anger. They wanted revenge for the death of the Prophet's grandson. Most of Banu Hashim still lived in Mecca and they were enraged at the death of so many members of their family. With Hussein's death, the focus shifted towards her son. Ibn Zubair was the last viable opposition to Banu Umayyah. All he had to do was say the words. After hearing of Hussein's death, Ibn Zubair called the people of Mecca for a meeting at the Kaaba. The people of Iraq are treacherous liars and the worst of people, her son said. And the people of Kufa are the worst Iraqis. They called Hussein and promised him their support. And when he arrived there, they turned against him and demanded he give the pledge to the son of the bastard. But Hussein preferred a death of honor over a life of shame. In Hussein's death, Allah has given us a sign. He has shown us that we can never rely on those Iraqis. We will never accept their promises or trust their words. They killed the best of us. They killed a man known to stand for hours in prayer and worship. A man who never touched a drop of wine and preferred listening to the Quran over the voices of singing girls. Allah will bring destruction to these people. Abdullah ibn Zubair was over 60 years old, but Asma had never heard him speak like this. He reminded her of her father, the first caliph, Abu Bakr. Say the words, ibn Zubair, someone shouted from the crowd. Just say the words and we'll pledge to you. Hussein is gone, someone else yelled. We have no one else but you, ibn Zubair. Say the words and we'll give you the pledge. To Asma's dismay, ibn Zubair refused to say the words. 
he insisted he did not want the caliphate and that he was only in Mecca as a refugee. Privately, Ibn Zubair had told her he was trying to buy time. He was hoping to build support without coming out as an open rival against Banu Umayyah. Asma did not like this plan. Ibn Zubair was hesitating while the people were begging for a leader. Besides, it would not be long before Banu Umayyah came after him whether he called himself caliph or not. She reminded him that Hussein had neither claimed the caliphate nor occupied any cities, but that did not stop Banu Umayyah from slaughtering him. Assalamu alaikum ya ummi, said Ibn Zubair as he entered her room. Wa alaikum assalam ya ibni, sit down. Do you have any news from Medina? Yes, he did have news. He told her how his half-brother, Amr ibn Zubair, came to the city and took over the police force. He told her about the investigation and the beatings. He told her how her other son, Munadhir ibn Zubair, was among those whipped. Asma sat in stunned silence as she listened. Amr ibn Zubair's mother was from Banu Umayyah, which explained his loyalty to them. But it did not explain his hatred of Zubair's other children. Still, there's hope, said Ibn Zubair. Ahmed ibn Zubair has left Medina, and without him, Banu Umayyah is weak. She nodded. Most of Banu Umayyah had left Arabia to settle in Syria during Muawiyah's reign. They left the land of their ancestors for the land of the Romans. Then she reflected on what her son had just said. Why did your half-brother leave Medina? He's coming here, mother, Ibn Zubair responded. He's coming to invade Mecca. Damascus, 62 AH How could they do this to me? Yazid ibn Muawiyah lamented. He tore the message up and let the pieces flutter to the floor. Yazid has sent Ahmed ibn Zubair to Medina as the captain of the Shurta. This brought some stability back to the city and stopped people from talking about pledging to the other ibn Zubair. Then Ahmed ibn Zubair left Medina with a small army intending to invade Mecca and bring his brother to Damascus in chains. But Abdullah ibn Zubair surprised them by meeting them outside Mecca with a strong force. Abdullah ibn Zubair defeated the Umayyad army and captured his half-brother. Ahmed ibn Zubair was flogged, just like he did the people of Medina, and then thrown into prison. With Ahmed ibn Zubair out the way, Medina was back to openly talking revolution. All Yazid's efforts to subdue the city had been in vain. So Yazid had tried another tactic. His father used to honor his political opponents with great feasts and generous gifts. In doing so, Muawiyah would turn his opponents into allies. That's why Yazid invited a delegation from Medina. Most of the delegation were Sahaba and had rank and influence in the city. One of them was even Ibn Zubair's brother, Munadhir Ibn Zubair. Yazid asked his cousin, Ahmed Ibn Sa'id, the former governor of Mecca, I gave them food. I gave them money. Yazid and Ahmed ibn Sa'id were not really on good terms. Yazid had tired of Ahmed's weakness against ibn Zubair and had recalled him to Damascus. Ahmed ibn Sa'id cleared his throat. 
Amir al-Mu'minin, the people of the Hijaz, are very simple folk. They are satisfied with dates and milk. They cannot be swayed by money and gifts. It worked for my father. Your father did not drink wine, Ahmed replied quietly. I only had a little bit. And you missed the prayer. Yazin had invited the delegation to a magnificent feast with steaming platters of exotic food, decadent sweet desserts, and fruits from all over the world. And yes, there was wine. There were also dancing girls and a Greek man with a wonderful lute and beautiful songs. I don't remember missing the prayer, he said meekly. That's because you fell asleep, Amir al-Mu'minin. Drinking wine can have that effect. It was starting to come back to him now. The wine had made him a little giddy, and with the girls dancing and the Greek man singing and the delicious rich food, Yazid remembered feeling very sleepy. We tried to wake you, continued Ahmed ibn Said, but you were too tired. When the time for prayer came, the delegates decided to pray without you. When the delegation returned to Medina, they told everyone about Yazid's behavior, and this turned the city against him even more. My father never had to deal with this, Yazid moped. Ahmed ibn Said seemed to delight in lecturing Yazid. The people of Medina are the closest to Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. They are his Sahaba and the children of his Sahaba. So what, said Yazid, you are a Sahaba. I am the son of a Sahaba. What does that mean? It means everything. They will forgive brutality. They will forgive incompetence, but they will not forgive impiety. Be careful, cousin, said Yazid tersely. His cousin had no right to speak to him like that. And be grateful I do not throw you in prison for your insolence. Ahmed ibn Said bowed his head solemnly, turned, and left the chamber. When Ahmed was gone, Yazid began to think how he could change things around. It was not too late. He was Muawiyah's son. He could figure this out. The current governor of Medina, another grandson of Abu Sufyan, was not a Sahaba. Perhaps that's why the people of Medina refused to obey him. Perhaps they would listen if one of the prophet's companions advised them instead. This is a good idea, thought Yazid. They will see that I am no fool. Al-Madinatul Munawwara, Thalatha Wasitin, Sanatu Hijriya. Medina, 63 A.H. Amir al-Mu'minin is a fool, said Marwan ibn al-Hakam. Abdul Malik stared at his father in shock. His father had never been one to bite his tongue, but such rudeness to the caliph was surprising. They were hiding in Marwan's house, hoping the mob would not destroy them. The people of Medina had declared themselves independent and repudiated Banu Umayyah's authority. The governor was also in hiding somewhere in the city, afraid for his life. Father, that is a horrible thing to say. It is the truth. In all my years of service, I've never seen such an incompetent man. He has defeated himself and brought shame on Banu Umayyah at every turn. Nearly a year ago, Amir al-Mu'minin has sent the elderly companion, an Ansar named Nu'man ibn Bashir, to Medina. His job was to convince the people to obey the regime. The people respected Nu'man ibn Bashir and they let him say his piece, but they continued to plot against Banu Umayyah. 
Abdul Malik remembered hearing his father saying it was a desperate move by a desperate man. Yazid should have sent Nu'man as governor rather than as a simple advisor with no authority. The current governor of Medina was a young man named Uthman ibn Muhammad ibn Abi Sufyan, and a more incompetent man Abdul Malik had never seen. This young governor had no clue of what he was doing. He did not surround himself with wiser men and simply relied on his name and pedigree to command respect. And, most egregiously, he brought wine into the Prophet city. There were still many people who remembered when Prophet Muhammad first banned the consumption of alcohol. This was a story the old folks loved to tell and Abdul Malik loved to hear. Wine was not banned all at once. If Prophet Muhammad had suddenly told everyone to stop drinking wine, it would have never worked. Instead, the Muslim community was slowly prepared for this over many years. First, Allah commanded them not to come to prayer under the influence. Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu la taqrabu salata wa antum sukara hatta ta'lamu ma taqulun. O you who believe, do not go near prayer when you are intoxicated until you know what you say. Then it was revealed that drinking wine had more evil than good. They ask you about wine and gambling. Say, in them is great sin and some benefit for mankind, but the sin is greater than the benefit. And finally, it was forbidden outright. Certainly, wine and gambling and sacrificing on stone altars and divining arrows are but tools of Satan, 
Avoid them so you may be successful. Satan wants to create enmity and malice between you with wine and gambling, and he wants to keep you from the remembrance of Allah and from prayer. Will you not abstain from them? By the time the final prohibition came, the Muslims were ready to obey. The streets of Medina flowed with wine as the young Muslim community broke their jars and tossed barrels of wine out of windows. It was an amazing, beautiful example of the unity and obedience the Muslims had back then. But now, things were different. The people of Medina had had enough of Banu Umayyah. Muawiyah moved the capital to Damascus. Muawiyah forced them to accept Yazid as caliph. Yazid sent an army to kill Hussein. Yazid sent Ahmad ibn Zubair to beat them like mules. Yazid's drinking and debauchery in Damascus. And now, the governor was drinking wine in Medina. That was the final straw. At first, they wanted to pledge to Ibn Zubair. But as he was still pretending not to be in rebellion against Banu Umayyah, they chose a respected companion named Abdullah ibn Hanzala as their imam. It won't be long now, Abdul Malik's father said. Soon they will come for us. What then, father? Marwan ibn Hakam shrugged. I suspect they'll kill us. They can't expel us or we'll go over to Amir al-Mu'minin. Perhaps we should fight them, said Abdul Malik. Not you, said Marwan sharply. You will stay in the masjid and continue your studies. Father, I'm not afraid. This has nothing to do with fear. Don't you realize how much they respect you? Abdul Malik was surprised. He did not see himself as anything special. They see you as one of them, his father said. They see you studying in the masjid, praying and reciting Quran. They see you asking questions of the older Sahaba and staying away from politics. They don't see you as Banu Umayyah. But I am from Banu Umayyah. Yes, you are, but you're also from the Tabi'een, a righteous follower. They see you as the future of this community. If fighting breaks out, do not get involved. Go to the masjid and continue your studies. Listen to what the people say and wait for the right opportunity. Just at that moment, they heard a loud commotion in front of the house. Marwan opened the front door to see almost 200 people waiting outside. What's going on? asked Marwan ibn Hakim. Everyone started talking at once and it was hard for Abdul Malik to make it all out. But he could understand a few things. The rebels had found the Umayyad governor and were holding him prisoner. They were going door to door arresting Banu Umayyah and their supporters. The rebels were now debating whether they should kill them or not. Help us, Marwan, one man cried. Contact Amir al-Mu'minin and tell him to send an army down here. We don't have much time. Okay, okay, just calm down. Stay here on my property. I will protect you as best as I can. Then Marwan turned to Abdul Malik and Abdul Malik understood the look in his father's eyes. It was time. Abdul Malik left and headed for the Prophet's masjid. He would study, and he would listen, and he would wait. Alright, alhamdulillah, I hope you found that entertaining and engaging and educational. For some reason, this was a very difficult episode to put together. I think because I was dealing with so many characters and it was kind of spread out all over the empire, dealing with four different cities. But anyway, alhamdulillah, here we are. So let's get into some insights. Number one, now that Hussein has been killed, you can see that Ibn Zubair is 
the last hope for the people who oppose Banu Umayyah, which is quite a bit of people, actually. Ibn Zubair, however, he's reluctant to just come out and openly rebel against Banu Umayyah. And even though his mother and others seem to disagree with him, there is some wisdom behind his reluctance to just come out against Banu Umayyah. For one thing, he takes the official position that he doesn't want the caliphate. He doesn't want to be the leader. He just doesn't want to give Yazid the pledge. And so from his perspective, or what he's the, the story that he's saying, I, I will say, is that he is not in Mecca to rebel against Yazid. He is in Mecca seeking refuge at the Kaaba as a sanctuary so that you know the, the Yazid won't send his military after him. Now, Ibn Zubair, he knows that he, at this time, he doesn't really have the strength to even fight Banu Umayyah. He has fought in the military before. Ibn Zubair has military experience. Uh, remember, he was under the command of um, uh, Yazid himself when they invaded or try, attempted to invade Constantinople. And he also, he saw how Banu Umayyah treated Hussein Ibn Ali. So right now, Ibn Zubair is just taking his time. He's biding his time. He's just trying to let Yazid, because he can obviously see that Yazid is kind of incompetent. He wants to let Yazid make all of the mistakes and weaken himself. And Yazid is making a bunch of mistakes. Uh, first, Yazid tries to say that uh, when the the survivors of Karbala come to Damascus, Yazid tries to tell them that he didn't really want Hussein killed and perhaps Alano's best, Yazid really didn't want Hussein killed. After all, his father had warned him about that. But the point is, whether Yazid wanted it or not, he was the caliph. He was the ruler. And these things happened under his watch. So ultimately, he's responsible. And so him making that big blunder of of uh, sending Obedullah after Yazid has really cost him a whole lot. And Yazid does not really have much support left. I mean, it's really only his governors, the, you know, the governor based of Banu Umayyah and the military that's keeping Yazid in power. The people, most of the people don't really care for him. For instance, we can take um, what's going down in what's going on down in the Hejaz, in the Arabian Peninsula. Ibn Zubair is in Mecca doing whatever he wants to do. Yazid so far hasn't even, it hasn't even been able to touch him in Mecca. The people of Medina have no respect for Yazid whatsoever. I mean, he sent his his uh, his captain of the Shursa down there. They beat them and they arrested a whole bunch of them and they still have no respect for Yazid. And in Kufa, even though the people in Kufa are afraid of Obedullah, they absolutely hate Yazid. Hated him back then, hate him now. <laughs> they absolutely hate Yazid. So um, Yazid is, he tries, he makes a bunch of blunders. Let's go through some, some of the blunders he made. He tried to force Medina to obey him by sending Ibn Zubair's half-brother, Amr Ibn Zubair. And I was trying to be careful with all these Ibn Zubairs because right now there are three Ibn Zubairs. There's Abdullah Ibn Zubair who is kind of turning into the, the hero right now. He's the one who's in Mecca who's, op who's opposing Yazid. Then there's his half-brother, whose mother was from Banu Umayyah, that is Ahmed ibn Zubair, and Ahmed ibn Zubair is on the side of the Umayyahs. And then there's ibn Zubair's full brother, Munzir ibn Zubair, who they share the same mother and same father, Asma bint Abi Bakr and Zubair ibn Awam. 
that's Mundir ibn Zubair. And Mundir will play a larger role later on. He played a small role so far in this in this story, but he'll play a larger role uh, coming down, inshallah, in the next episode, or next season, I should say. But anyway, Ibn Zubair is doing whatever he wants in Mecca. The people of Medina can't stand Yazid, and the people of Kufa hate him. He sent um, Ahmed ibn Zubair to try to force Medina, and that didn't work out. So then he tries to entice them by being kind to them, like saying, well, if the harshness doesn't work, let me try honey instead. And he invited them, he invited this delegation to Medin, to uh, Damascus, and the delegation gets there and he just totally ruins it by having singing girls and music and wine. And, you know, you can imagine what would happen if a just keep this in mind. These are a bunch of companions in this delegation, companions who grew up with Prophet Muhammad And they get to Damascus and see the man whose name, whose title is the commander of the faithful with dancing girls and wine and singers uh, at his feast. And, and then on top of that, Yazid got so drunk, he missed the prayer. So, of course, they come back to Medina and they're convinced this man cannot be our leader. They start spreading, spreading the story all throughout Medina. And, of course, the people in Medina, they're just like this delegation. They grab onto that and they want nothing to do with Yazid. So everything that Yazid does just seems to push his control, make his control over the empire weaker and weaker and weaker. And now even the members of Banu Umayyah are starting to doubt his competence, starting to doubt it maybe it would be better if Yazid just went away. And you see Abdul Malik and Marwan ibn Hakam, they, they are in Medina when all this is happening. They don't really have much love for Yazid. They follow him because he's their leader. They gave him the bayah, they gave him the pledge. And so, but really they don't really have any. They know that Yazid doesn't know what he's doing. Now, Abdul Malik and Marwan ibn Hakam are going to play much bigger roles. I don't want to give everything away. You can always go online and figure what role they play later on. But essentially, so you know who Abdul Malik is. Abdul Malik, he's a young man from Banu Umayy at this time. He's only about in his mid-30s. But he's known to be very pious. He uh, pretty much grew up in Medina, and he spent most of his life studying under the Sahabas and some of the um, Tabi'in that were there. The Tabi'in, by the way, is a generation that came after the Sahaba. His father, Marwan ibn Hakam, is very political. As we saw in the story, Marwan ibn Hakam had once been the secretary of Caliph um, Uthman ibn Affan. He had also once been the governor of Medina under Muawiyah's reign. But Abdul Malik, up till now, he had pretty much stayed away from politics. He had mostly focused just on religion and religious learning. So Marwan ibn Hakam, he knows that Yazid is really not up to task. And so he's plotting now, basically, that if they somehow survive this, if they somehow get through this, Marwan ibn Hakam wants to make a way so that his family, his immediate family, not all of Banu Hashim, but his immediate family somehow are able to take advantage of the situation. And that's why he tells his son to, for now, just stay out of it and watch, see how things go, and wait for the right opportunity. Inshallah, we'll see how these opportunities and how things play out in the next season, season four, which hopefully will be will begin, I'm hoping, somewhere towards the end of 2017, inshallah, depending on how things go. So, 
As I mentioned in the beginning, this will be the last episode for season three. It will take me a few months to get season four ready. Uh, season four is pretty much going to be all about Ibn Zubair and his struggle against Banu Omeya. Uh, the, the episodes, well, I'll say the, um, the period of Ibn Zubair historically lasted about 10 years. I don't know how long it's going to take to get through all that. I'm hoping it shouldn't take more than uh, 10 to 12 episodes, but we'll see, inshallah. In between these two seasons, I will release a few more episodes. For one thing, I'm going to uh, finish off the Anglo-Afghan War. And Anglo-Afghan War is an old episode anyway. It's an old story, but I'll put the entire thing out um, probably next week, inshallah, then, so you can hear it all. And um, then, inshallah, I have to keep a promise I made to um, one of my sponsors, uh, people, one of the, the brothers who sponsored this show on Patreon. I did. Um, he made a suggestion that we should do a story on the ifk of the slander against Aisha radiallahu anha, and I think it's a good idea. So, inshallah, I will be releasing that hopefully within a month or so. Kind of guessing here. Don't know. The good thing is that I, I already have the notes for this episode, for this for this um, trial, this this event in history, because I took a Sira class and I have all my notes. So I just got to dig them up. And so I don't really have to do a whole bunch of research. It's really got to kind of put it together. So I'm hoping inshallah, I can have that for you in a few weeks, um, maybe a month at the most. Allah knows best. Just pray for me and make sure <laughs> ask Allah to make this easy. Um, final thing, a few more um, notes before we wrap up. The show notes for this episode will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Medina. When you get there, you can get a manuscript for the show. You can also find links to my various social media channels if you feel like following me. And one thing I meant to put on the last episode, well, the two episodes ago that I did not, were maps of Hussein's journey to Karbala. I'm going to include them on this one because I didn't do it when I should have done it. Anyway, now I will also include a link to the Islamic Podcast of the Week, which will actually be one of my own old podcasts, Sirius Sira. Uh, back in the day of 2014 or so, something like that, I had Sirius Sira, 2013 really. I had a podcast called Sirius Sira, which was about the Sira of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But I didn't finish the whole thing. Just got to roughly about uh, cover from the Prophet's birth up until the Hijrah to Medina. So right now, the, the Sirius Sira, the podcast, is not available on iTunes. I took them all down. It is currently only available from the archives, which you can get if you become a sponsor. I will give you, I will include a full link to one episode, inshallah, in um, the show notes here. But the, all the other remaining episodes, are, you can ha you're have to, going to have to um, become a sponsor, which you can do for as little as $1. Become a sponsor of the show, and you will get a link to all the archives, inshallah, which will include Sirius Sira and many other things. So, to become a sponsor, just go to patreon.com slash islamichistory. Uh, sign up there, and uh, inshallah, hopefully you will enjoy what you see there. Until next time, brothers and sisters, friends and family and fans and all alike, until next time, inshallah, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. When we left last week, we had just finished speaking about the Prophet's migration to Medina, how he had allowed everyone else from amongst his followers in Mecca to make the hijrah before him, and then he stayed behind with Abu Bakr, and they made the very treacherous and dangerous journey from Mecca to Medina together taking refuge in a cave and nearly escaping death on several occasions. When the Prophet Muhammad and Abu Bakr arrived or began to get closer to Medina, 
he sent Abu Bakr up ahead before him. And there was a Jewish man up in a tree looking out as the people were expecting Prophet Muhammad to come. And they saw the two men approaching. And he called out to the Arabs, the man you've been waiting for is coming. And the people of Medina, they had been anticipating the Prophet's arrival. They were very eager to see him. Most of the Ansar, the inhabitants of Medina, from amongst the Aus and Khazraj, most of them have never seen the Prophet before. Only those who had actually made the the Hijrah, the, the Hajj, the two previous seasons, the two previous, year, previous years had actually seen him, those who, who had made the first and second pledge of Al-Aqabah. But everyone else in Medina had not seen him, so they were eager to meet him and see this man whom everyone had been speaking of for so long, and this man whom they followed, basically. They were very eager to see him. You can imagine if you yourself had the opportunity to see Prophet Muhammad, how, how anxious and how much would you be anticipating the moment when you could finally lay your eyes upon him. So they were also eagerly awaiting to see him. And as he came into the city of Medina, there are stories of the different songs that they sang, and some of the songs are very popular. And there has been some dispute about whether the song Tola al Badru Alayna is actually authentic, whether it was actually sung or not. And Allah knows best if it was actually sung or not. But certainly the people did sing upon his arrival. And whether they, whether they sing that song or another song is somewhat irrelevant. The fact is the people of Medina were very happy to see him. Wow. 
Da. Da. 